Welcome to the Emergency Medicine Cases Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. It turns out it's impossible to fake a tongue tremor at all. We have many patients in my department who are still slurring and can barely lift their head up who are asking for benzodiazepines. Alcohol withdrawal is everywhere. We see over half a million patients in U.S. EDs for alcohol withdrawal every year. Despite these huge volumes of patients and the diagnosis of alcohol withdrawal seeming relatively straightforward, it's actually missed more often than we'd like to admit, being confused with things like drug intoxication or sepsis. Or it's not even on our radar when a little old lady presents with delirium. The differential diagnosis is humongous, and no blood test on the planet will help us diagnose alcohol withdrawal. In fact, the diagnosis is entirely a clinical one. What's even more surprising to me is that even if we do nail the diagnosis, observational studies show that in general, alcohol withdrawal is poorly treated. Now, there's several reasons for our all-too-often mismanagement of these patients. Few EDs have a standardized approach or training of an approach to the management of alcohol withdrawal. There's unfortunately still a bit of a stigma associated with alcoholism in many EDs. And the medications used to treat alcohol withdrawal are often dosed incorrectly. Now, some of you might be thinking, well, so what if we miss alcohol withdrawal or we don't treat it properly? Well, mismanaged alcohol withdrawal can be fatal. And untreated severe withdrawal often ends up with your patient seizing or maybe a progression to delirium tremens or a severe metabolic disturbance like hypo-K, which can also be life-threatening, of course. But don't fret. We've brought together three huge brains with three different backgrounds to help you become masters of alcohol withdrawal treatment. We've got Dr. Bug Borgenvog, an ED doc and researcher, with a special interest in emergency alcohol-related illness, and the director of the Schwartz-Reisman Emergency Medicine Institute. Welcome, Bug. Welcome, Anton. Next, we've got Dr. Melka Hahn, an addiction specialist for more than 20 years, who's written a bazillion papers and books on alcohol-related illness, and the medical director of the Substance Use Service at Women's College Hospital in Toronto. Welcome, Dr. Kahan. Thank you, Anton. Hi. And Dr. Sarah Gray, not only an ED intensivist from the hospital in Toronto that probably manages more alcohol-related illness than any other in the country, St. Mike's that is, but also actually my study buddy back at McGill University in the early 90s. It's been a long time coming having you on EM Cases, Sarah, so I'm absolutely thrilled to finally have you as a guest. Welcome, Sarah. Thanks, Anton. Awesome. So let's jump right into the first case. A 52-year-old man, known well to your ED for chronic alcohol use, presents the ED asking for detoxification from alcohol. He says he usually drinks a 750-milliliter bottle of vodka daily. His last drink was 12 hours prior. He denies any co-ingestions. However, he did run out of his script for lorazepam a few days ago. He has no previous history of alcohol withdrawal seizures or alcohol withdrawal delirium. His vitals show a heart rate of 140, an elevated blood pressure of 170 on 85. He's diaphoretic and has an obvious tremor. 
He's given a liter of IV normal saline and 10 milligrams of diazepam. Half an hour later, the nurse calls you to reassess the patient as his tremor seems to be worsening and his vital signs haven't improved. So, Dr. Kahan, with this patient who's presenting to the ED, what, what else do you want to know about him to help manage his apparent alcohol withdrawal? Well, on the history, a number of important points were already identified, but a few things that need to be gone over. One is, does he have any clinical signs or indication of severe liver disease? Because if he has advanced cirrhosis and there's liver dysfunction, diazepam may not be the optimal choice. He may be better off with lorazepam. So that could be identified on physical examination and possibly later laboratory. The second is to take a good history of concurrent medications. If, for example, this patient were on methadone for opiate addiction or on opiates for chronic pain, he could have severe concurrent adverse events if you're administering high doses of diazepam or lorazepam at the same time. So you need to know about his medical history. You'd like to know how much lorazepam he was taking because maybe he's having severe withdrawal from that. But you got the main points, and that is that he doesn't have a history of withdrawal seizures or delirium tremens, and that's important to know because past events predict future episodes. So if he typically had, you know, three or four withdrawal seizures in the past, he's going to get it again when he stops drinking, and you need to be prepared for that. And also getting an idea of the amount that he's consumed and the last drink. He only had a drink 12 hours ago. That means he's going to get worse. If he came in saying his last drink was three days ago, then you know he's probably on the, the way to recovery, but not with just 12 hours. And also, the severity of withdrawal is very much related to consumption. And he's drinking a lot, although three quarters of a, a liter, I think you said, of vodka is about 18 or so standard drinks. And that is going to put him at risk for very severe withdrawal if he's drinking that on a daily basis. Well, there were so many great pearls in there. We're going to be going through all the aspects of what you just talked about in terms of dosing, in terms of the timing of withdrawal, and we'll get into all the details of that. Any other comments about finding out more about the history from this guy? I'd like to know a little bit more about why he was taking uh, benzodiazepine, why he had a prescription for the benzodiazepines in the first place, and how much of that he was taking. Because I think if he's run out of that, that's going to definitely uh, make his syndrome appear worse. Right. We're definitely going to talk about whether it's appropriate or not to give a script for benzodiazepines when a patient is discharged. And we'll just give you a little hint. Probably it's not. <laughs> All right. So we'll get into details of that. So let's talk about sort of a general approach to alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Dr. Borgenvog, you've given some great talks on this topic and you have this amazing approach. Can you just explain to our listeners your approach to alcohol withdrawal syndrome? Yeah, Anton, I like to try and break it down into four separate steps and each one has their own challenges. Number one. Step number one, which is identifying patients which are actually in alcohol withdrawal and require treatment might be one of the toughest ones. As you alluded to already in the beginning, we see lots of these patients. It's a common condition. And the problem is it's a clinical condition. There's no test or investigation that's going to tell you this person does or does not have alcohol withdrawal. So really, the first challenge you have is trying to figure out which person has got withdrawal and which one is likely going to require treatment. 
Number two. After that, I think that we should probably use a standardized symptom-guided approach to guide our therapy. I think that unless we have a way of evaluating the severity of withdrawal, it's going to be hard to gauge the intensity of our treatment. So I would encourage people to find a way of assessing severity of withdrawal and then uh, use that in a consistent way to guide their management in an organized fashion. Number three. The third point I think is important is to ensure that patients are fully treated prior to discharging them from the emergency department. And I think that's important for a few reasons. One, it's good to know that patients are not going to get any worse after you send them home and develop problems. Uh, Remember that patients can develop alcohol withdrawal and can get progressively worse for up to three or four days from the time of their last drink. And if you're using a short-acting agent to treat them, there's a possibility that they could metabolize that and develop subsequent problems. The other thing you'd like to do is if you know that they're fully treated and that they're going to be managed prior to sending them home, you don't have to give them a prescription. And as you already alluded to in the beginning, one of the things I think that probably where we could improve our practice is reducing the number of prescriptions that we give to people for benzodiazepines as they leave the emergency department. Number four. And the final point that I think is important is that we should try and find ways to help these people and support them in their pathway to sobriety. So we should try and find a slightly more organized way. I know at our hospital, we just used to give people the telephone number for the detox unit. And we've been working at putting together a comprehensive list of local resources where people can go and and find help. Awesome. So just to go over there, the four principles of alcohol withdrawal management, according to Dr. Borgenvog, and I think this is a great approach, is one, identifying which patients have alcohol withdrawal and require treatment in the ED. Two, using a standardized symptom-guided approach to assess symptom severity and guide treatment. Three, ensuring that patients are fully treated prior to ED discharge. And four, providing a pathway to support patients who are trying to quit. So let's go back to the first step and get a little bit more into that. So the first step in your approach is to identify or diagnose alcohol withdrawal. Now, this might sound kind of simple, but it's actually not so simple in in many cases. How do you make the diagnosis of alcohol withdrawal in the first place? And in particular, what makes the tremor of alcohol withdrawal unique compared to other forms of tremor like essential tremor or Parkinson's tremor? Maybe I'll address the tremor issue first. One thing that's good to be able to do is to recognize the tremor of alcohol withdrawal. It's a very characteristic tremor. It's an intention tremor. So often when patients are sitting at rest, you won't see any evidence of it. But if you ask them to extend their hands, you'll unmask it. And it's a fine motor tremor in some of the work that we've done. We've learned that it usually somewhere between 5 and 12 hertz. And it doesn't fatigue with time. So... Once you learn to visually identify the tremor of alcohol withdrawal, I think it's kind of unmistakable and it's hard to confuse it with other forms of tremor. But if you don't have a lot of experience or haven't seen a lot of it, it's possible that you could make that error. For those of you who haven't seen a lot of alcohol withdrawal and in particular haven't seen a lot of the alcohol withdrawal tremor, we'll have a video on the blog post for you to check out. So you etch it into your brain and you'll recognize next time you see that alcohol withdrawal tremor. The other thing you have to do is you just have to have, I guess, a general suspicion. If a patient comes in with symptoms which could be compatible with withdrawal, it's such a common thing. So 
the symptoms of alcohol withdrawal include gastrointestinal upset, anxiety, nausea and vomiting, diaphoresis, tachycardia, hypertension, headache, and so forth. I think it's just one of those things that you need to keep on the in the front of your mind as you're talking to patients. If you get any hint at all that you think the person might be in withdrawal, it's something that's worth exploring. I would say that it's worthwhile to try and elicit the tremor in different ways. The key thing is what Bugue said is that it's not a resting tremor. And I've seen so many times a patient who's been in hospital alcohol withdrawal is not suspected because every time they look at the patient, they seem to be comfortably resting in bed. So you need to deliberately elicit the tremor in different ways. You can have the patient hold their arms and hands outstretched and look at it that way, have them reach for a coffee cup or a pen, and even get them to walk across the room because it's often a whole body tremor affecting the legs as well as the arms. So it has a lot of features in common with cerebellar tremor and benign essential tremor, but it's quite different than the kind of very rhythmic, fine tremor of hyperthyroidism or general agitation and so on. So I think the key is to think about it and actually deliberately try and elicit it. Dr. Borgenberg, I do understand that you have this very cool new app to assess the alcohol withdrawal tremor in the ED because, you know, sometimes it is hard. I find it hard to decide whether this person's malingering or not. Can you just tell us a little bit more about this app and how it works? So the idea came when I was assessing a patient in alcohol withdrawal with one of the emergency medicine residents training at our hospital. And so we went together and we went to examine the patient and I asked the patient to extend their hand so we could look at their tremor. And I asked this resident, so could you rate this? We rate everything on a zero to seven scale on the CWA, which I guess we'll talk about a little bit later on. I asked this resident what he thought, and he said, I think that tremor looks like a seven to me. And I was quite surprised because I thought that tremor looked like a two out of seven. And it dawned on me that unless you've seen somebody in severe withdrawal, you probably aren't going to recognize that. And I tried to think of ways to quantify tremor intensity. And I just had this idea one day that we could probably use the accelerometer in iOS devices to do that for us. So we spent a number of years working on calibrating and developing an app that allows us to quantify, reliably quantify the tremor of alcohol withdrawal. I will say it's a useful clinical move. If I suspect that somebody might have alcohol withdrawal, or if I suspect that they're malingering when you ask them to hold out their hands to show you their tremor. I like to examine patients without them necessarily knowing that I'm examining them. So I'll say, gee, you look a little thirsty. Can I get you a glass of water? And I'll get them a glass of water and I'll just hand it to them and I'll watch what happens. And generally people who have a real alcohol withdrawal tremor, it'll unmask it right away, even if it doesn't look so bad. It's a great clinical trick. So we'll have a video of this on the website to show people how it works, and hopefully soon it'll be available publicly and widely that, that we can just download it on our smartphones uh, and use it in the ED to help us distinguish these, these true alcohol withdrawal tremors from someone who might be malingering or a different kind of tremor. I think it's worth mentioning that Buke has conducted an important validation study. I don't think it's published yet, but it did show that the accelerometer was closely correlated with expert opinion reviewing videotapes of patients in alcohol withdrawal and that when you ask a 
you know, general nurses and doctors and so on who are not specialists in this area, their scores vary tremendously. So the accelerometer is going to give a tremendous amount of precision, I think, to our diagnosis of co-withdrawal and also the patient's response to treatment. Awesome. We've looked at a lot of videos over the past few years. Yeah. Lots of videos of hands shaking. Yeah. Sarah, Sarah and Mel have graciously donated hours of their time to help with this research. Yeah. Great. Some yeah. true collaboration there. Yeah. Awesome. Until we get the app, we can try the glass of water trick. I've also heard of looking for a tongue tremor. Dr. Borgenvog, could you just tell us a little bit about looking for a tongue tremor and how that might help us? So the interesting thing that seems to be a frequent problem in emergency departments now is once patients learn that they come to the emergency department and say they're in withdrawal, because they have been in the past, they'll likely get treated with some benzodiazepines. And benzodiazepines, as most listeners will know, have significant abuse potential as well. They act through pharmacologically a very similar mechanism as alcohol. So it's quite possible that people become codependent. So one problem clinicians have is trying to distinguish a real tremor from somebody who's malingering, as you've indicated. It turns out it's impossible to fake a tongue tremor at all. And if you just ask the patient to stick out their tongue, you can see a tongue tremor with roughly the same frequency. And it's one thing that you just cannot fake. It's something I've only learned about in the last few months and I've been experimenting with. And it does seem fairly reliable to me, although quantifying it might be more of a challenge. I don't think we can put my phone on someone's tongue. (laughs) All right. Well, we'll have to do a quantitative observational study on that one. (laughs) Okay. Um, Now, what about the timing of withdrawal in relation to alcohol consumption? You know, when can we expect our patients to go into withdrawal once they've stopped drinking? You had alluded to this before a bit, Dr. Kahan, but in particular, if the patient's recently been treated for alcohol withdrawal, when can you expect them to go into withdrawal again? Well, I think the key thing to understand about alcohol-dependent patients is that they're very, very tolerant to alcohol. And so their entire nervous system has been reset to compensate for the sedating effects of alcohol. So what that means is that a patient who is severely alcohol-dependent can be walking and talking and appear to be almost normal, having consumed amounts of alcohol that would be fatal or at least put another person into a deep coma. But the converse of that is that when they stop drinking, they go into withdrawal when their blood alcohol level is still quite significant, well above the legal limit. So you have to kind of understand that. If you see a very tolerant patient in the emergency department who's intoxicated and they have a very high blood alcohol level, you can anticipate that they're going to go into severe withdrawal in some number of hours, even if they have an appreciable blood alcohol level. One area where there seems to be a lot of confusion in the emergency department about alcohol withdrawal is And this is why point one, you know, identifying patients that are in withdrawal is so important. There are lots of heavy drinkers that we see and it's important to note that they can't be in withdrawal if they're still intoxicated. It seems to be a common issue. People like to start a CWA protocol on patients, perhaps in anticipating that they're going to develop withdrawal. But it isn't, the CWA protocol isn't a way to identify patients in alcohol withdrawal. It's a way to gauge severity. 
And it, it, that's totally right. And in fact, it's dangerous to give diazepam or lorazepam to someone who's intoxicated because it's going to increase their sedation. It's going to increase their emotional lability and impair their judgment and put them at risk for accidents and other harms. Yeah, I mean, I can see how that can sometimes be confused, alcohol intoxication with alcohol withdrawal. You know, they they both have a high blood pressure. They both have tachycardia. They can both be sweaty. There's a few symptoms and signs there that do overlap. So in terms of, you know, this brings up kind of the differential diagnosis, which we'll get into a bit later. But what are the key things to distinguish alcohol withdrawal from alcohol intoxication so that we're not inadvertently giving patients benzodiazepines when they're wasted on alcohol? Yeah, I think for me, this comes back to the tremor being really key. Whether you're in withdrawal or you're intoxicated, you can have the diaphoresis, you can be flushed, you can have tachycardia, but they won't have the tremor, a real withdrawal tremor until that process has started. So I think a careful clinical exam is really important. The other one I find is slurred speech. Slurred speech tends to go mostly with intoxication and not with withdrawal. We have many patients in my department who are still slurring and can barely lift their head up uh, who are asking for benzodiazepines because of their withdrawal. And those ones are fairly easy to distinguish. All right. They still trick people, though. We had, uh, you know, it's surprising how challenging. If I could just share an anecdote, I had a patient that was sent to me from a, a medical detox unit nearby. And they were very concerned about this lady and they were very perplexed because she appeared to have a decreased level of consciousness and was slurring her speech. And yet she had a tremor and they were worried that she was in withdrawal. And they'd actually given her already one dose of some benzodiazepines for that. You know, the backstory when I examined her and spoke to her family was she'd been waiting for this appointment to be admitted for a medical detoxification. And then on the day that she was meant to be admitted, got cold feet and didn't want to go. So her family bribed her with a bottle of vodka, which she promptly consumed on her way to the detox unit. And when she got there, of course, she was quite intoxicated. Now, unfortunately, this woman was a chronic alcoholic who I think also had developed some cerebellar issues related to her chronic alcohol consumption. So she had a cerebellar tremor, a very different appearing tremor to an alcohol withdrawal tremor. But every time she tried to move, of course, and sit up, she had this, you know, trunkal ataxia and these gross motor movements of her hands. And the people that had originally assessed her were worried that, you know, she had this terrible alcohol withdrawal tremor and yet and needed treatment. And actually the treatment in her case was to let her sober up, of course, and as she did, her tremor became less intense and everything improved. All right. So key to distinguish alcohol intoxication from alcohol tremor. That brings up the question, is there any value in ordering an ethanol level in a patient who has a straightforward presentation of alcohol withdrawal or in a patient who you might not be sure that they have alcohol withdrawal? When is it indicated to order an alcohol level or an ethanol level? I think it's worthwhile if you're not sure, because if the level is very high, for example, if the level is three or four times the legal limit, then the patient is probably intoxicated. And even if maybe they're starting to merge into withdrawal, you have time. 
So I think that when there's some uncertainty, especially if you have, as Sarah was saying, if there's a tremor plus slurred speech or the patient strongly smells of alcohol, then I think that it's probably worthwhile to take a blood alcohol level just to confirm it. Or if you have a patient, as Hugh's example, with an impaired level of consciousness and you're not really sure what's going on, a blood alcohol level can be very useful to point to alcohol as a possible contributing factor. You just have to be a little bit cautious. We have a number of people who will be in clear withdrawal at four or five times the legal limit, and it's because they live at eight times the legal limit. So we see some impressive numbers where I would be unconscious and they are in withdrawal. So it's helpful to know your population a little bit. Right. So you need to be able to interpret that alcohol level within the clinical context of the patient and their, their alcohol history. Additionally, if there's a suspicion of some co-ingestion of another form of alcohol, so things are not adding up, then it might be a useful test to do. But I don't think that we routinely do alcohol levels on all our patients. Okay, great. So that's a bit about the value of an ethanol level. Some common lab abnormalities that we see in chronic alcohol users are things like anemia from B12 deficiency, hypoelectrolytes from malnutrition, so hypo-K, hypo-mag, and also an elevated AST to a greater degree than an elevated ALT is kind of the classic liver enzyme abnormality in a chronic alcoholic. Is there any value in the ED in ordering these tests? So for me, we don't order them routinely, but I think if there is some clinical concern that leads to them being ordered, then particularly the K and and the MAG, if they're critically low, are things we would treat and manage. I think that if the patient is, for example, profusely sweating and diaphoretic, vomiting and so on, I think it's worthwhile ordering electrolytes. I think if you have some clinical concern that they may have liver dysfunction, cirrhosis, a hard liver, etc., it's probably worthwhile doing some laboratory tests of liver function, albumin, bilirubin, and the transaminases, because that may affect your treatment, diazepam versus lorazepam. Or if the patient is tachycardic or very severe autonomic hyperactivity, I think a cardiogram to rule out prolonged QT interval or other arrhythmias. But Hmm. for most mild cases of alcohol withdrawal, I would say that baseline tests are not necessary. That's an interesting one. You brought up prolonged QT with alcohol withdrawal. That's something I didn't know about. Yet another thing to add to our long list of what can prolong the QT. Let's talk a little bit more about that. So... When would you consider ordering an ECG on a patient in alcohol withdrawal? Well, there is some good evidence that some patients in severe withdrawal have prolonged QT interval. And that may explain what causes of sudden death in patients who have severe withdrawal or delirium tremens that they go into a uh, fatal arrhythmia, torsad to points. And so withdrawal resolves with treatment. So it's not there at baseline but it is there with very severe withdrawal. So I would say that if you are concerned, if you have a patient that needs to be admitted because of alcohol withdrawal, it's probably worthwhile to do a baseline ECG and to monitor the ECG, you know, and also to do cardiac monitoring. So it hasn't been thought of much, and I don't think it's needed routinely, but there is good evidence emerging that it is something that is a definite complication of the severity of withdrawal. I I like, Mel, how you said 
Torsena de points. We do have a lot of American listeners, but that makes me think that you didn't grow up in Canada because most <laughs> Canadians say Torsena de points. Oh my goodness. In the, in probably, the true uh, French. Yeah. Well, I grew up in Saskatchewan, which is a prairie province. So you <laughs> not know, much we, French there. <laughs> we were militantly uh, non-French speaking okay. out there. So. <laughs> so, but Mel, can I just ask, so when I think of long QT in these patients, I think of them being either hypomag or hypo-K, and that's what's giving them the long QT syndrome. And so I totally agree in those patients, treat that, watch the ECG. But are you saying some people in severe withdrawal have long QT in the absence of electrolyte problems? Well, I think that in many cases, the cause is the same. And that's a kind of cascade of epinephrine and norepinephrine that accompany alcohol withdrawal, that the stimulating hormones, which do lower potassium, that push potassium out of cells, and also are associated with cardiac arrhythmias and prolonged QT. So I don't think it's necessarily the causal pathway is always low potassium. I think that they both share the same pathway of hyperadrenergic syndrome. Wow, great question and great answer. (laughs) All right, so that covers ECGs and blood work, most of it at least. What about urine drug screens? Now, this is something, you know, some hospitals I've worked at, every patient who comes in altered gets a urine drug screen. Other hospitals I've worked at, hardly anyone ever gets a urine drug screen. Let's start with Dr. Gray, who sees, again, trillions of patients with multiple co-ingestions. At St. Mike's, what do you guys do in terms of urine drug screens in the patient and alcohol withdrawal? When would you consider doing a urine drug screen? Never. Uh, so we will not send urine drug screens on these patients. And in fact, we will almost never send a urine tox. And our practice is partly informed by one of my colleagues who happens to run the poison control center here in Margaret Thompson, yeah. She's been on EM cases and she's going to be on EM cases again and at the EM cases course. And uh, Perfect. She is the most awesome toxicologist ever. Right. So Marg, yeah, is an amazing, smart person who fiercely scolds our group whenever we send a urine tox because the turnaround time is very delayed. The accuracy in some cases is questionable because so many different drugs can cross-react on a urine tox screen to give you potentially false results. Her teaching is that it never changes practice and that we shouldn't be sending tests that aren't going to change our practice. Okay, and just to clarify, this is in contradistinction to a serum drug level looking for toxic alcohols. Totally different from the serum. Totally different from serum. I am just talking about a urine drug screen. Dr. Kahan, what's your take on the indications for doing a urine drug screen in the emergency department, knowing that you're an addiction specialist who doesn't work in the emergency department? I totally agree with Sarah in that the results are quite delayed and all they show is the presence or absence of drugs. doesn't show quantity or when they last ingested or anything like that. So it's very little value. I would say, however, that it is critically important that you know what medications licit or illicit that the patient has taken, particularly opiates and particularly methadone, because there have been serious cases of patients on methadone 
getting benzodiazepines for alcohol withdrawal or any other cause and they have had an overdose. And in fact, most cases of opiate overdose have involved the co-ingestion of opiates and benzodiazepines. So when you're giving a very large amount of diazepam or any other benzodiazepine, you need to know the patient's recent opiate ingestion. You're making a good case for not prescribing benzodiazepines for patients when they leave the emergency department. It's one of the things that I think physicians are not really aware of. It seems like a kind, humane gesture to help somebody who is likely going to continue to crave alcohol a long time after they leave the emergency department. But, you know, I'm aware of data that suggests that 30 to 40% of people who die from an accidental opiate overdose have benzodiazepines in their system which were not prescribed for them. So these pills make their way onto the black market. They get sold and uh, they end up in inadvertent hands. That's outside of the emergency department, but your point is well taken for inside the emergency department as well. People are going to respond differently, I suppose, if they have large amounts of opiates on board. Right. And getting back to Buke's original point, the practices of emergency departments that undertreat alcohol withdrawal and give a patient a take-home prescription of benzodiazepines are really potentially harming the patient and the system. And, and that happens in two ways. If the patient leaves the emergency department not fully treated for their alcohol withdrawal, they're going to relapse to alcohol. So it's been kind of a pointless, in a way, therapeutic intervention. If they leave, whether or not you've given them benzodiazepines, they are going to relapse because they're feeling unwell. And they're going to not only relapse, but they're going to take the benzos as well. So, And then the next time that they're intoxicated and they're thinking, oh my God, I need to stop drinking, I'm going to go into withdrawal, I'm going to go back to the emergency department to get kind of a preventative prescription for benzo. So when you're giving a benzo script to someone who has been poorly treated in the eMERGE, they are going to relapse, they're going to come back in the next day or two in just as bad, if not worse, shape. So we know that alcohol-dependent patients are a very frequent utilizers of the emergency department, and part of that it may relate to emergency department practices of undertreatment and giving take-home prescriptions. So we've touched on some of the differential diagnosis of alcohol withdrawal. We've touched on how to make the diagnosis of alcohol withdrawal. But I want to get a little bit more into the differential because it can be a total disaster if you diagnose someone with alcohol withdrawal and they've actually got something else horrible going on. Dr. Gray, what are some of the other diagnoses that we should be considering in a patient who looks like they might be in alcohol withdrawal? What don't we want to miss? Sure. I mean, so we've already talked about make sure they're actually in withdrawal and not clinically intoxicated. The other one that is a common pitfall is the person who is in withdrawal but also has a head injury in there that you might not pick up if you're not doing a careful neuro exam. Certainly in our population, many of the people out drinking excessively do fall and, and hit their heads fairly routinely. And we've had a few cases of people who we initially start thinking are withdrawal, but who end up 
also having a subdural or something else important going on neurologically. Right. Um, so those alcoholics who have their brains are literally atrophy, those bridging veins. Absolutely, are stretching, are stretching out every out, day. And they're definitely at higher risk of bleeding in their head. A lot of them have elevated INRs. And so when they do start bleeding, and they their really start bleeding. don't work. And their platelets, yeah, okay. Yes. They're a big setup for this. If they've just been drinking a lot, they often can't tell you whether or not they had a fall. They aren't always reliable historians, depending on how intoxicated they were. So a careful neuro exam can be important. And then when we move to the patient who has delirium as well, that broadens out to your whole delirium differential diagnosis. Oh, that's just a tiny little narrow diagnosis. I know, right? It's, right? it's only pages and pages <laughs> in, your, in your average textbook. So that's a big one. But yeah, so if you have your patient who's delirious and has the tachycardia and usually the high blood pressure, this is the person where you're starting to investigate and send labs and do your ECG. And these people, I think, are getting a considerable workup. You need to look at infectious causes. Is there sepsis or something else there driving this? There are uh, what, do you, what do you know about sepsis? <laughs> oh, only what by, I hear by, on EM cases. <laughs> by the way, Dr. Gray wrote the Canadian guidelines for sepsis, but... Um, Sorry. Oh, that's okay. And then, you know, other things that are going to give you similar pictures, certainly there are other toxins that can do it. It can look like a sympathomimetic or an anticholinergic, can look like a serotonin syndrome. You can move into endocrine causes like thyroid. You always want to think about the toxic alcohols. And then even other things like a hypertensive crisis can look similar to this and can give you some neuro findings. People with acute pain, something, you know, elderly people with delirium and acute pain can get that tachycardia, hypertension, and some altered mental status. So once they have the delirium, for me, they have really moved into a different category from the standard alcohol withdrawal. My standard alcohol withdrawal get a very minimal workup, but once they have delirium, that completely changes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned elderly patients. It's my understanding that alcohol withdrawal and delirium tremens are often missed in older patients. The ones who are actually at the greatest risk for nasty complications from alcohol withdrawal, you know, like lethal dysrhythmias. You know, I think this is mostly because we only pick up about 20% of older patients with serious alcohol problems in the first place. And the diagnosis of delirium tremens is often left out of the differential of older patients who present with mental status changes. Suffice to say, next time you see a little old lady with delirium NYD, just use that cognitive forcing strategy to yourself and think, you know, could this little old lady be in alcohol withdrawal? It's a great Absolutely. point. Absolutely, yeah. Sometimes it's hard to tell. They present with other things too. You mentioned sepsis and patients with an alcoholic ketoacidosis often have an elevated lactate and some confusion. And I would think that would probably be the number one thing that you'd be considering as an alternate diagnosis. Huh. Well, one thing to keep in mind is that Metabolic stresses such as infection, pneumonia, pancreatitis will actually dramatically worsen alcohol withdrawal. So a patient may be in mild to moderate alcohol withdrawal in general. Now they're in hospital with pneumonia and that seems to make it more likely that they're going to go into delirium tremens. The autonomic hyperactivity is just greatly magnified by their underlying infectious or other process. That's one thing. The other thing to always consider is going back to Bugue's point of the importance of early identification because there's 
quite good evidence, I think, that early and aggressive treatment of mild to moderate alcohol withdrawal will prevent the development of delirium tremens. And once the patient is in delirium tremens, they're relatively resistant to benzodiazepines and they sometimes or often need to go to the ICU for more definitive management. Of course, there's a, a spectrum of alcohol withdrawal from the very mild to the full-blown seizures, delirium tremens, etc. Sometimes I get a bit confused between alcohol withdrawal plus hallucinations and delirium tremens. So, Dr. Kahan, can you just help our listeners kind of tease that apart? Because, you know, part of the CWA protocol, which we're going to talk about in a minute, is hallucinations. So we get patients with alcohol withdrawal who have hallucinations. How do you distinguish that from full-blown delirium tremens, which is a more serious problem? Alcoholic hallucinosis is pretty common. It's the most common form is the feeling of bugs crawling under the skin. The patient who has that is generally quite oriented. They're completely oriented. They know where they are. They know what's happening. And they know that there are no bugs crawling under their skin. It's just a sensation that they have. Delirium tremens often is accompanied by hallucinations. They tend to be incredibly vivid, what we call fused hallucinations. That is, you'll actually see a person in your room who is talking to you as well. So they are living in this dreamlike or nightmare-like state where they really don't know where they are. They're having often delusional, they're paranoid, along with hallucinations, and they really are quite disoriented. They will be in a hospital room and they'll say that they're actually in their hotel room and that the year is 1965 and you are not a doctor, but you were a detective or something like that. It really is dramatically different than simple alcoholic hallucinosis. Great. So knowing the spectrum of disease, keeping this in mind, let's move on from the first step of Dr. Borgenvog's approach to alcohol withdrawal, that was identifying the patients who require treatment, to the next step, which is using a standardized symptom-guided approach to assess symptom severity and guide treatment. So first of all, in what way is protocolizing alcohol withdrawal useful? Well, I think that it introduces some standardization into care. Right now, the physician or nurse, unless they have a lot of experience, are really not going to be able to make the clinical decision of when a patient needs treatment. So a CWA has been shown to give some standardization. It makes sure that the nurse and the doctor identify the key symptoms of withdrawal and monitor progress. So the CWA has a cutoff of 10 in general that a patient who scores above 10 requires pharmacotherapy. Patients less than 10 require observation. And if it's consistently less than 8, treatment can be discontinued. So it has been shown to improve the quality of care and the consistency of care that patients get. And so I think it is an important tool, especially for clinicians that are not well experienced in the area. Those are great points, Mel. You know, the CY isn't everybody's favorite tool. Some people think that it's difficult to do and takes a long time. And those criticisms often are correct. 
But it is, at the moment, the best tool I think that we have to apply to the emergency department treatment of patients with alcohol withdrawal. And the reason for that is there's two randomized control trials that have compared a protocol that's been based on a CWA assessment, so a standardized way of assessing withdrawal severity and treating according to severity. There's two randomized control trials that have shown if you do that, if you use that approach, that you will have much faster, dramatically faster resolution of symptoms of alcohol withdrawal. You'll give significantly lower doses of benzodiazepines overall uh, with no increased incidence of the severe outcomes of alcohol withdrawal, so seizures and delirium tremens. The reason why it's more effective than the standard treatment is that standard treatment for many years has been to give an inflexible dose of benzodiazepines, say diazepam, 5 or 10 milligrams QID for a set number of days, seven days, for example. With symptom trigger treatment using the CWA, you give quite a high dose of diazepam, 10 or even 20 milligrams orally every one to two hours. So you're actually treating the withdrawal at its peak with an effective agent. So the withdrawal is going to resolve much faster because you're giving a higher dose of benzos. When the symptoms have resolved, you stop treatment so that you're not over-sedating the patient, you're not prolonging the benzodiazepine treatment. And with diazepam, there's a kind of pharmacokinetic self-tapering. That is, it just gradually dwindles down in the serum over the next four or five days, and by then the actual withdrawal symptoms have resolved. So it's not only more effective, it causes a quicker resolution of symptoms, but it's also safer. So the bottom line there is if you don't have a protocol for your alcohol withdrawal patients in your emergency department, get one. And the best one for now is the CWA protocol. I understand, Dr. Gray, that you've developed this new shorter version of the CWA protocol. That sounds very intriguing because as Dr. Borgenvog was alluding to before, it's quite long and time consuming to do in the emergency department. Can you tell us a little bit about this new tool that you can use to assess alcohol withdrawal severity in the ED? Yeah, absolutely. So part of the research we've been doing is seeing if we could find a shorter scale than the CWA that would be easier to do in the emergency department because it would take less time. And when we first started looking at this, Mel and Bug and I all collaborated on it, we looked at a wide variety of scales to measure alcohol withdrawal that are available. And the most common features that came up in a number of those scales, we then condensed down to a four-item scale that we called the SHOT. And we looked at this comparing it to the CIWA at some of the hospitals in Toronto. The um, shot, I like that. The Very shot. clever. Yeah, I think that, Shout wasn't out that to you, Grant Mel? No, no, that was, was, was it Buke? That was, I think it was Grant Innes. What did we first call it? It was the, the host, host We called it the host, and I was presenting some preliminary work at CAPE, and I think it was Grant Innes who walked by and said, host, you can't call it the host. We're yeah. talking about drinking. You've got to call it the shot. Because <laughs> it, it was the acronym for the four features, which were sweating, hallucinations, orientation, and tremor. Okay, sweating, sweating, hallucinations, hallucinations orientation, orientation, and, and tremor. tremor. I mean, those do, I mean, just Which logically seem like like some good ones to look at. 
Yeah, we felt were actually the most predictive items you wanted to assess while still being sure you were assessing the orientation and hallucinations, which is important for that delirium piece. Mm -hmm. And I guess we got a better acronym uh, as we went from some feedback. It actually correlated quite closely with the CIWA in the study we did. And the upside to that is that it only took people about a minute to use rather than the CIWA, which takes just under five minutes to apply correctly. And that's the kind of time saving that might be important in the emergency department where you're assessing these patients on an hourly basis. It still needs a broader validation study, I think, before we could roll this out as a prime time thing. And in fact, while we were doing all this work on the shot and looking hard at the tremor item, that's where we sort of segued into Bugue's iPhone app or iOS app, looking at more objective ways to measure tremor, because that was the most highly weighted item in the shot score. So we've taken a bit of a lateral move to see if we can optimize the measurement of tremor, because doing that, I think, would make a scale like the shot even better. Suffice to say, keep your eyes and ears open for the shot tool, Once it's validated, hopefully it will be validated, and this is something that may take over from the CIWA and make all our lives easier and help our patients, of course. Before we leave the CIWA protocol, we know that it has good validity for alcohol withdrawal. What about for delirium tremens? Should we be using CIWA for patients with delirium tremens? You know, the CIWA is 10 different elements. One of the elements is orientation. And all of the other ones are scored on a scale of 0 to 7, but orientation is different. It's on a scale of 1 to 4. And I think it's intended to be used so that if patients have disorientation, if patients are not oriented or could have delirium, those people get identified and they get selected out. So the CY can't be validated for delirium tremens because the CY requires patients to give you a coherent answer about things like How anxious are you? How nauseated are you? Do you have a headache? You require a coherent patient in order to answer those questions. So I don't think we can use it for patients that have delirium. Wonderful. Now we get to go on to drugs. The question is, what is the drug of choice for the management of alcohol withdrawal? Some people have used lorazepam. Some people have used diazepam. Some people recommend phenobarbital. There's all kinds of stuff out there. What is the drug of choice for management of alcohol withdrawal and why? So there is a Cochrane review on this topic. It hasn't been systematically studied all that rigorously, but there is data available on thousands of patients. And the summary of the Cochrane review is that the benzodiazepine class of agents are the drugs of first choice for managing patients who have alcohol withdrawal and appear to be associated with better outcomes. Beyond that, I'll say that if you're going to use benzodiazepines, my preference would be to choose the drug with the longest half-life possible. Diazepam has a half-life. The way it's metabolized, it gets turned into active metabolites, so it has a half-life of around 100 hours. And that's important because, remember, it takes five half-lives before you can fully excrete something from your system. So the reason we preferentially choose diazepam or drugs with, you know, Librium is another one, chlordiazepoxide, is roughly the same half-life. The reason we choose those drugs primarily is because they're going to be metabolized very slowly and they're going to even out the sort of withdrawal from the alcohol. And I think that's overall going to be beneficial. 
in contrast, there's no reason why you couldn't use shorter-acting drugs like Gadavan or lorazepam. But remember that the half-life of lorazepam is something between 8 and 12 hours. So if we apply that half-life rule again, if you treat somebody in the emergency department aggressively and then you send them home, that person could potentially develop delirium in two or three days as the lorazepam wears off. Okay, so diazepam has a longer half-life, so that's why it's advantageous. What about the onset of diazepam? So you got your patient in the emergency department, they're in withdrawal. You want to get them out of withdrawal quickly, especially if you're worried that they're about to have a seizure. Is there an advantage of diazepam over lorazepam in that respect? I think pharmacologically there's some evidence to suggest that diazepam has a faster onset of action. I think the most important point here, though, is if you're concerned about a patient, if somebody comes in and they have a very high CWA, and you think they're at risk of having a seizure, you should probably be treating that patient parenterally using intravenous drugs, which will allow you to gauge the effect of your treatment much faster and allow you to go back and reassess the patient on a more frequent basis. So if I have a patient that I'm really worried about, I'll treat them intravenously and I'll gauge their response. I might come back and see them in 15 or 20 minutes. And by then, the medication should be working and I should have some idea whether they need additional doses. The thing you have to remember is when you take medications orally, it's going to take at least an hour until you reach sort of maximum effect for that dose. So you'll always be an hour behind. So more importantly than the pharmacology of which agent has a faster onset of action, I think choosing parental versus oral route of administration for patients with severe withdrawal is probably a more important thing to consider. Okay, so oral diazepam is fine for patients in mild withdrawal, but anyone who's in kind of moderate to severe category, that's when we want to be reaching for the IV medications, yeah? Yep. I think the bioavailability is equivalent, right? So whether you give them 20 milligrams orally or 20 milligrams intravenously, the net effect will be the same, but the onset of action will be faster. Okay. How about in patients who have known severe liver disease? My understanding is that diazepam should not be used in those patients. And this has kind of always been a bit confusing to me because I kind of assume that most of these patients in severe alcohol withdrawal have liver disease. So how do you know which patients that you want to avoid diazepam in who might have severe liver disease? I think my practice there is if I see obvious evidence of stigmata of liver disease, somebody who's got you know, jaundice, somebody who has ascites, somebody who has bruises, somebody who has a medical history that includes things like cirrhosis, that's going to be somebody I'm going to be very cautious with. Otherwise, practically speaking, I'll probably start with a dose of diazepam for all my patients. And I think the worst case scenario in that instance is that it's going to have a longer effect. I agree totally with Buke. I think the key distinction is liver failure versus some degree of hepatic dysfunction. So someone with liver failure, they may be stable, but they have a history of ascites and esophageal varices and jaundice and so on. The problem with giving benzodiazepines to that patient is that they are at risk for encephalopathy. And benzodiazepines are a clear and important risk factor for encephalopathy. So you have to balance the risk of alcohol withdrawal versus the risk of encephalopathy. And in general, except for DTs, encephalopathy is more dangerous than withdrawal. So you have to use, whether it's diazepam or lorazepam, I'd say lorazepam is preferable, but even with lorazepam, give small doses. Don't just give it for mild withdrawal, just try and titrate very carefully. It's a very difficult balancing act, but the kind of pre-encephalopathic patient cannot be treated the same as other patients. Uh, great. So there's some great nuances here. So I just want to 
try and clarify and review here. So in your mild alcohol withdrawal patient, the drug of choice is diazepam, assuming that they don't have any obvious liver failure, and you can give that orally. In a patient with severe alcohol withdrawal, diazepam, again, is your drug of choice, probably best given IV so you can titrate it better. And if the patient does have a history of liver failure or obvious stigmata of liver failure, the drug of choice would be lorazepam. And if they're pre-encephalopathic or encephalopathic, you want to lower the dose and be really careful. Yes. Okay, got it. Dr. Borgenvog, I understand that some of the research that you've done has, the observational data has shown that we often overdose or underdose benzos in patients with alcohol withdrawal. So while we want to give enough to get the patient out of withdrawal and avoid seizures, we don't want to give them too much to cause oversedation and aspiration and loss of airway and all the other potential disasters. What kind of dosages are we talking about for diazepam or if the patient has liver failure for lorazepam? If somebody has a CWA that's less than 10 and they're in mild withdrawal, I don't treat them with anything. The way our protocol works at our hospital, if they have a CWA between 10 and 20, we would call that moderate withdrawal. And I would treat that person with oral doses of medication, either 5 or 10 milligrams of diazepam as a starting dose, and then I'd gauge their response to that, and I'd give additional treatment based on that response. If somebody is in severe withdrawal, so we usually define that as a CWA more than 20, I'll treat them parenterally, and if there's any degree of uncertainty, I'll probably give 10 milligrams intravenously, and then I'll reevaluate more frequently. Okay, so that's your starting dose. How quickly can you expect it to work and when will you redose and how big are your doses going to be when you redose? So our protocol requires that patients be assessed every hour and their response gauged on an hourly basis. So if I gave somebody 20 milligrams, if their initial CWA was 14 or 15 and I go back and reassess them in an hour and their CWA is still above 10, I'll give them the same dose again. There's really no upper limit to how much you can give. I think I can personally recall giving someone once 180 milligrams of diazepam over the course of their eMERGE stay. They were still walking around and were a lot calmer. So I think as Dr. Kahan pointed out before, these people can be incredibly tolerant to these medications. And, you know, just because somebody has had 40 or 60 milligrams of diazepam doesn't mean they're not going to respond or they're not responding. I think I would just keep treating them. One important point that you've made is this hourly assessment, and that's important for two reasons. First of all, if, as is commonly done, you only check on the patient every two, three, or four hours, you're going to dramatically prolong their length of stay because many patients require multiple doses. So if you do it you know, every three hours, it's three times as long. It may change an eight-hour length of stay to a 24-hour length of stay. Furthermore, their withdrawal is going to keep on getting worse if there's long intervals in between doses. So I think the hourly protocol is more effective. It's safer and shortens length of stay. All right. So that's the sort of mild to moderate patient. Dr. Gray, what about the severe raging, like they look like they're just about to seize? What kind of dosage protocol will you use for that? Yeah. So for the severe patients, we'll start with 20 intravenously. 
But the severe cases need to be reassessed and redosed more frequently than hourly. Waiting that duration of time is often too long for them, especially if you're concerned about seizure. So we'll redose them every 15 minutes or so until we feel like we have better control, until we see that CIWA score starting to come down or their vitals improving. Okay, so we'll have some protocols on the written summary and blog post for people to review this stuff. Now, there's some literature and expert opinion pieces out there on using phenobarb instead of benzos in treating severe alcohol withdrawal. They argue that it makes sense physiologically and that phenobarb acts in a dual mechanism, which enhances GABA activity and suppresses glutaminergic activity as opposed to benzos, which only enhance the GABA activity. They also argue that clinically for patients who fail benzotherapy, there's a subset who will respond to phenobarb. And that phenobarb may result in less paradoxical delirium compared to benzos. So there's some pretty good, you know, some physiologic, some clinical, theoretical stuff at least, why we'd use phenobarb. So Dr. Gray, is there really any role for phenobarb only, like a phenobarb only algorithm? or even a phenobarb-benzo combination. What's your opinion on that? Yeah, so my opinion is that many patients do well just with benzodiazepines. There is no evidence out there that phenobarb is better than benzodiazepines, and there is debate about the equivalency. From a pragmatic perspective, the onset of IV diazepam is much faster. So if I have somebody I'm worried about in the emergency department, I will always go to that first to try to get that initial control. And so my practice in general is to use a fair amount of IV diazepam before I will start adding phenobarb as an adjunct. Because I do find there is a subset of patients who are refractory to benzos and you're getting to your total doses of 100 milligrams, 200 milligrams, and you're still not getting on top of it. Those patients, I think, are ideal to add phenobarb on top of your benzodiazepine regimen. But I don't start with phenobarb alone because of the onset latency. And now here's Justin Morgenstern with EM Cases, EBM, EBM, bottom bottom line. This month, our question is, What is the evidence for phenobarbital in the management of alcohol withdrawal? To answer this question, we're going to look at two studies. The first is by Greg Hendy in the American Journal of Emergency Medicine 2011. This was a prospective, randomized, double-blind trial, but it was small, with only 44 patients. They enrolled patients with alcohol withdrawal who the treating physician thought required IV treatment. They compared lorazepam, given 2 milligrams at a time, to phenobarbital, given 260 milligrams for the first dose and then 130 milligrams for subsequent doses. Now, I have to admit my biggest weakness when it comes to assessing these trials. I've never used phenobarbital, so I'm not sure if those are adequately equivalent doses. The results? Both drugs worked. Both drugs lowered the CWAS score by about the same amount. In this trial, most patients were managed as outpatients. The lorazepam group was continued on Librium for two days, whereas the phenobarbital group received no further treatment. They did have limited follow-up, but the CWA scores were still the same 48 hours later. This could be a big win for phenobarbital. You don't need a script. It auto-tapers. But one patient in the phenobarb group, which is 5%, had a seizure at home. The second study is by Jonathan Rosenson in the Journal of Emergency Medicine 2013. This was also a small, prospective, randomized, double-blind trial. 
This time, 102 patients all received lorazepam according to an institutional CWA-guided protocol. The patients were then randomized to either a single dose of 10 mg per kilogram of phenobarbital or placebo. The biggest issue for this trial, aside from its small size, is that these weren't consecutive patients. Now, for the primary outcome of admission to ICU, phenobarbital was better than placebo. 8% of the phenobarb group were admitted to the ICU as compared to 25% of the placebo group. Now, I'm not so sure about this as a primary outcome. It's subjective, but it is also pragmatic. It's good to keep people out of the ICU, but I'm not sure it's the outcome that really matters. Imagine that I give all of these patients high doses of a beta blocker. Their heart rate would come down and their CWA score would come down, and maybe I wouldn't admit them to the ICU. But is that really helping them? Okay, so we need an EBM bottom line. Both of these studies suggest that phenobarbital would be helpful in alcohol withdrawal. But the real question is, is it any better than benzodiazepines alone? The decrease in ICU use is nice, but the major caveat is that these studies are just too small to make any conclusions about safety. Multiple drugs increase the chance for errors, especially when the added drug is rarely used. So my bottom line, phenobarbital is interesting, but it's probably not ready for prime time as a solo agent or as an adjunct yet. It's a reasonable second line agent for benzo-resistant patients, although that's not really what these studies looked at. Ideally, this is the kind of decision that isn't made by individual docs in the heat of the moment. Alcohol withdrawal is a serious condition, and I think these decisions are better made as part of an institutional protocol. That's all this month. Thanks for joining me for another EBM Bottom Line. Bottom Line. Bottom Line. So moving on with other drugs to consider for the patient in alcohol withdrawal, what about thiamine? You know, there's concerns perhaps about Wernicke's encephalopathy that we all learned about in medical school. Should all patients with alcohol withdrawal in the ED receive thiamine? And there's also the so-called banana bag, the multivitamins. I'm actually unclear as to which patients need thiamine and or multivites in the ED. I've often joked that we have a population that are in the emergency department fairly frequently and they're probably amongst the best nourished people in the city because they frequently get thiamine and multivitamins like every day <laughs> in the emergency department. And I say that only partly joking. If you identify somebody who's been flying under the radar and has been an alcoholic for a prolonged period of time and has not had a lot of medical interactions, so I'm not talking about the people that come to the emergency department once a week or once a month, but somebody who's been at home has been an alcoholic for years, those people are malnourished. Those are people where I think probably thiamine and multivitamins are probably more of an important consideration. But for a lot of the folks that we see, at least in a sort of an inner city hospital emergency department that are in the emergency department pretty frequently, I'm not sure how critical that is. Yeah, I think the risk is minimal and the potential benefit is significant for patients who are at risk for Wernicke's. When you're concerned about Wernicke's, it's 500 milligrams IV. Our standard dose for anybody who walks in with withdrawal is just 100 milligrams orally. So the nurses don't have to put a line in. It's very easy. It's inexpensive. But yes, if there's any concern about encephalopathy, treatment doses for that are much higher. Great. Got it. What about sugar? So sometimes these patients are hypovolemic and we need to resuscitate them, usually with normal saline. But uh, when would you consider giving these patients some IV, say, D5W? I have to say I don't routinely 
start people on intravenous fluids and or supplements. We usually try and get them eating and drinking orally and see how that goes first. If I'm concerned enough, if I have somebody who's sick enough that I've done blood work, I'll usually use something like an anion gap to help direct whether or not I'm going to treat that person with sugar-containing solution. So alcoholic ketoacidosis is reasonably common. It corrects very easily just with an infusion of glucose solution. I, I just honestly use D5 and it'll correct over a period of hours. But I have to say that I think that's really the only time when I would consider using intravenous glucose solutions. Okay. And that, that gets back to the Wernicke's encephalopathy thing. You know, the classic teaching is that if you give glucose before the thiamine, that you can precipitate Wernicke's. Is that true or is that a myth? I think it's at least theoretically true. They compete for the same cofactor, glucose and thiamine. So if you give glucose first, then that can actually consume thiamine that's already there in deficient quantities in the serum. So you give thiamine along with glucose. All right. If you're going to give glucose and thiamine, give them together because of this theoretical possibility of getting uh, Wernicke's from it. Yeah, I don't think there's any evidence of harm from one administration of glucose in this scenario, right? While there is that theoretical risk, I don't think anybody's ever documented that, you know, your initial bolus of glucose, a one-time thing, precipitates it. But as you've said, the easy way around it is just give thiamine at the same time. All right, let's move on to Dr. Borgenvog's third step of his approach to alcohol withdrawal, and that is ensuring that patients are fully treated prior to discharge from the ED. And we touched on this earlier. When is a patient who presents to the ED in alcohol withdrawal ready for discharge? So the way we've been doing it at our hospital is we assess patients every hour and we look and make sure that they're not getting worse or that they haven't deteriorated between assessments. If we have a patient who's had a CWA score less than 10 on two sequential assessments at least two hours apart and otherwise, you know, there's nothing in the history that makes us concerned that that person is going to deteriorate, I would consider that person a candidate for being discharged from the emergency department. And I would add as a caveat to that, that the tremor should be minimal and the patient should be reasonably comfortable because the CWA is consisting of 10 items. Tremor is only one of them. It is possible for a patient to have a score of five or six on the tremor and deny other subjective symptoms and therefore score less than 10. So I would say that clinical judgment that the main physical sign is tremor and that that needs to be minimal or resolved before discharge. Great caveat. And we've alluded to this before, but just to drive home the point, do you ever prescribe benzos for outpatient management after you've treated their alcohol withdrawal in the ED adequately? So you've treated the patient, their CWA is less than 10 twice, their tremor is gone. Is there any situation where you would prescribe benzos? I usually tell my patients at the outset because they're very anxious, right? They're anxious that they're going to get worse. They've either experienced this before or they don't feel good. And I always tell them, listen, I'm going to treat you until it's safe to send you home. 
while you're here. And I'm not going to send you home until then. And I'm not going to send you out of here if there's any question about that. So I always state that right at the outset. And then hopefully, you know, I reinforce it every time I interact with the patient so that they know by the time we're done, I've told them repeatedly that I'm not going to send them home unless I know that it's safe to send them home. And at that point, it's a lot easier to say, your treatment here is complete. You're still going to crave alcohol. I don't want to create a new problem for you by creating a codependency issue. Benzodiazepines and alcohol share the same pharmacological mechanism, and it's very easy. You know, the main people that are addicted to benzodiazepines are alcoholics. So it's very easy to substitute one for the other, and that's not doing anybody any favors. So, you know, it's part of the whole treatment algorithm, but I always try and emphasize that I'm going to send you home when it's safe to send you home. I'm going to try and find a treatment program to send you into so that there'll be some ongoing follow-up. But I don't provide patients with, you know, we used to call it a unit dose, a couple of tablets to take home or prescriptions because I'm very concerned you're taking a patient who has already has a known substance misuse disorder and now basically throwing gasoline on the fire. I, I couldn't agree more. So let's go on to our final step in our four-step approach, and that is providing a pathway to support patients who are trying to quit. Now, Dr. Kahan, you have extensive experience seeing these patients after they leave the emergency department. What do you think we can do in the ED when we're discharging these patients to help maximize the chances that they're not going to bounce back, that they're going to get the care that they need on the road to recovery from their their alcoholism? Well, I think the first thing to look at is the emergency physician's attitudes and beliefs with respect to alcohol use disorder. And I think that surveys have shown and talking to eMERGE doctors has confirmed that many emergency doctors are very pessimistic about alcohol users, that they feel that, you know, they keep on coming back and they're unpleasant to deal with, they're unreliable historians, they don't take medications properly, and they feel kind of helpless that is, the doctor feels helpless that there's really not much I'm doing for this patient other than treating their withdrawal. They're going to go out and they're going to relapse and I have no role to play. But I think that the evidence suggests and our clinical experience suggests that's wrong. And it's wrong in a number of ways. The first way is that patients come to the emergency department specifically to get help. That is a very common reason to coming to the emergency department. I've had enough. I want to stop and I want to get help. Secondly, when they're in the emergency department, they're very uncomfortable. They're very frightened. They are sometimes accompanied by family members. And this is a vulnerable, important moment for them. They are sober. They realize the consequences that they're drinking and they're ready to listen to a positive message. So the key message that the emergency department doctor can give and he or she can give it very quickly in a minute or two is A, you need help. You've got a serious problem. B, there are treatments out there. You can't do it on your own. You need to have treatment for this problem. And C, treatments are actually quite effective and they're cost effective as well. And that with treatment, your life is going to be profoundly better. You're going to feel better. Your mood will be better. Your social relationships, your work, all aspects of your life are going to improve if you participate in treatment. So treating alcohol withdrawal by itself 
doesn't lead to long-term recovery, but it is an essential first step. So the emergency department doctor says, okay, we just corrected this serious problem, but the rest is up to you. You need to participate in treatment. And I would say that another important point about treatment, treatment is not just Alcoholics Anonymous and detox centers and psychosocial treatment programs, important and essential as they are. There is now quite convincing evidence that medication-assisted treatment is critical. And that includes anti-craving medications such as naltrexone and acamprosate, second-line drugs such as gabapentin and topiramate, and disulfiram. And that, in fact, these medications should be routinely offered to all patients with an alcohol use disorder. They're not just, you know, when the psychosocial treatment has failed. In a very similar paradigm to a treatment of smoking cessation, that where we give the patch right at the beginning of treatment. So the emergency department doctor needs to say, you need to go to your family doctor or even better, maybe an addiction doctor who can prescribe anti-craving medications. And you also need to participate in community programs such as Alcoholics Anonymous to explain to the patient that they have a biomedical as well as psychological illness, just like a mood disorder or diabetes or any other kind of illness that has lifestyle components as well as medical components. So that very strong message that while this alcohol use disorder problem is not your fault, it is your responsibility to get treatment. Wow. That was awesome. I mean, I I think what I'm going to do is I'm going to take this recording I'm just going to take that little part that you just said. And every time I have a, a patient in alcohol withdrawal and I'm about to discharge, I'll just say, just just listen to this. Because <laughs> there's no way I could say it better than that. Amazing. I, I can't imagine that Dr. Gray or Dr. Borgenbach have anything to add to that. Anything the only thing add? I will say, you know, we've been, we've been studying this in our emergency departments for a long time. I spent a lot of time talking to patients who are alcoholics, you know. I've never met anybody who was happy to be an alcoholic or wanted to continue to be one. And I have had patients come back to me and tell me subsequently, in some cases years after I first saw them, that they remember our interaction very clearly and they felt that a positive interaction actually gave them some hope. Somebody took a systematic approach towards assessing them and managing their problem in the emergency department and it really did convince them to go on and seek treatment and find help. And they had achieved sobriety for prolonged periods of time. Unfortunately, life is what it is and recidivism happens. But I've seen multiple people back who've been enrolled in our studies who've fallen off the bandwagon for a brief period of time and would like to become sober again. And several people have told me that exact story. It's a part of your whole approach in the emergency department and the way that you do approach it with patients, I think is very important to them. All right, let's move on to the really sick patient. So let's say this patient who we presented in the first case comes back three days later and now he's hallucinating and he's completely disoriented and let's say his temperature is like on the border of febrile. He's really tachycardic. He looks really sick. You're worried about him. What should be the disposition for these kinds of patients who, let's say you've stabilized them, they're in full DTs, they're stabilized. I often find it difficult to know whether these patients should be admitted to the ICU or admitted to the floor. So let's just talk a little bit about disposition. Dr. Gray, 
What are the indications for an ICU admission for a patient in alcohol withdrawal? Sure. And so it depends a little bit on how your hospital is resourced, whether or not you have a medical step-up unit that's sort of an intermediate step and the type of place that you work in. Certainly at our place, once you're intubated, you're coming to the ICU. If you are significantly hemodynamically unstable, you're coming to the ICU. If you have refractory hypothermia, where people are trying to actively bring your temperature down and can't, that would be one of our indications. Recurrent seizures certainly come to us. And then last but not least, do they have other significant comorbidities, underlying medical or surgical conditions that are contributing to their medical issues? Those patients would come to the ICU. But at our place, we don't have a specific dose cutoff or timing cutoff for benzodiazepines that dictates ICU admission, although I know some other facilities that do use those that have numbers where once you've crossed a certain number of milligrams of diazepam, you go to the ICU. That is not our practice at my place, but some places do use that also. That's a great list for indications for ICU admission. Let's assume that this patient and full DTs has horrible renal failure, horrible liver, liver failure. They end up getting intubated for whatever reason, and they come to the ICU, there's a whole bunch of medications that have been touted for patients in severe alcohol withdrawal in the ICU, like propofol, even ketamine. Use ketamine for anything for any patient anywhere Absolutely. in the ED, yeah. <laughs> it seems these days. Um, and then the one which I hope I can pronounce, dexmedetomidine. No, no, wait. Dexmedetomidine, yes. Dexmedetomidine. You got it. I got it? You got it. All right. Dexmedetomidine. When do we consider using these medications? Sure. So in general, our approach in the ICU, I think, dovetails nicely with what we do in the emergency department. You're still going to start with benzodiazepines. Once they're intubated, it might be an infusion of a benzodiazepine rather than hourly doses, but they're going to get intravenous benzodiazepines. We love our propofol, especially once they're intubated. This is giving you the same GABA effect. So I think that would be the second drug most commonly added or refractory agitation DTs or refractory seizure. Mm. Okay, that's good to know. So propofol would probably, probably because we're very familiar with propofol, we use it all the time. That's exactly right. So I'm just trying to think from an ED perspective that let's say a patient's stuck in the ED who should be in the ICU mm-hmm. for various reasons and you need to go to something beyond your benzos. We talked a bit about phenobarb that we might not be so comfortable. So propofol is definitely an option once the patient's intubated. Correct, right? Once the tube's there, propofol is definitely an option. After that, if they're still not controlled with benzodiazepines and propofol, you've given them a lot of GABA activity. You probably need to start considering other agents. We would typically add phenobarb at that stage, either orally or intravenously, because that's going to act through the different pathway, which may be helpful for you. So I would add phenobarb as my third line. There is a lot of discussion about dexmedetomidine in the ICU. There is evidence overall that it will reduce the amount of benzodiazepines that you need to administer. But it's not clear that switching from one ICU drug to a different ICU drug actually helps you discharge anybody more swiftly or with increased safety. So we will use it on patients who we have really... There are days when we get to phenomenally high doses of benzodiazepines and propofol where we feel we are giving people toxic side effects from those medications. And for those people, we'll add dexmedetomidine to reduce the benzo dose, Mm -hmm. but not because we think it's any better than the underlying benzo. And then last but not least, there's always ketamine. 
We use it less, I would say, for alcohol withdrawal than we do for straight-up status epilepticus. And these patients do start overlapping in this very severe category. But if the patient was in refractory seizure, we will certainly add ketamine for those patients. And you do start to see more reports of it used in severe alcohol withdrawal. Given ketamine's amazing popularity recently, I think we'll see more and more of that. So we might see better evidence coming down the pipe in the next few years. Great. That's a great summary. What about the patient who's in DTs, who's hallucinating, but who's like tearing up your emergency department? You know, some docs might be tempted to reach for Haldol to help with sedation. What's your take on using Haldol in the setting of alcohol withdrawal? Haldol for alcohol withdrawal scares me a little. It reduces your seizure threshold, which is always a risk in these patients. It increases your risk for hyperthermia, which is going to be a challenge. I tend to not go there. I would still be with benzodiazepines for this patient in the eMERGE. Okay. No Haldol for alcohol withdrawal, generally speaking. So we've got this patient. We've intubated this patient. I have seen patients get intubated in the emergency department for alcohol intoxication alcohol withdrawal, and sometimes I kind of scratch my head wondering why they were intubated in the first place. Can we just talk a little bit about indications for intubation in the patient with alcohol withdrawal or alcohol intoxication? When should we be pulling the trigger? You know, of course, you have to take each case individually, but what are some of the things we should be thinking about when deciding when to intubate? Yeah, I would say at my place, it's actually quite rare that we intubate anybody for alcohol withdrawal. It's interesting to read reports from other centers. Some places seem to have quite high intubation rates, so we must have some difference in how we practice or in our population. For us, the main indication is refractory seizure. So if you have somebody whose withdrawal is severe enough that they are having recurrent seizures and you're worried about status epilepticus, that is an excellent reason to propofol and intubate. And that, I think, is the best move possible. I like, uh, I like how you have to propofol as a verb. It's a verb at my place. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's propofol that patient. Yeah, let, let's, uh, let's propofol. You know, apart from that you get into a bit more of a gray zone of whether or not you should intubate. I do think we sometimes have cases where patients receive a more significant benzo load than perhaps they needed, and they start dropping their level of consciousness and they get into concerns about protecting their airway. Certainly, if you have airway concerns, you go ahead and intubate the patient. But ideally, you've used something like the CIWA to guide your your approach to benzodiazepines so you don't run into that problem of overloading your patient and then having to intubate them for an iatrogenic complication. All right, before we wrap up this episode, I just want to ask one more question about the future of alcohol withdrawal management in the emergency department. Dr. Kahan, what do you think is coming down the line in terms of how we're going to be managing these patients in five or 10 or 15 years from now? Well, I think there's increasing recognition that acute withdrawal is just the first stage of withdrawal, and it's followed by subacute withdrawal, which is characterized by weeks or even months of patients who are dysphoric, who can't sleep, and who have strong cravings for alcohol. And so I think what's going to happen in the future is that emerge departments are going to recognize that they are just at the beginning of treatment, that when they finish treating acute withdrawal, that's not the end of it, that they will either initiate treatment for subacute withdrawal 
uh, or they're going to refer patients to a rapid access addiction medicine clinic where those treatments can be started right away. And that includes medications such as gabapentin, topiramate, acamprosate, particularly very strong evidence of benefit, and naltrexone. So acamprosate, for example, relieves symptoms of subacute withdrawal and has been shown to reduce relapse. So the eMERGE department is going to say, okay, you're okay to go. I'm not giving you benzodiazepines, and I don't want to see you back here, so I'm going to give you a prescription for acamprosate until you can be seen in an addiction medicine place for follow-up. And I think it's going to dramatically change the emergency department's view of alcohol use disorders and their role in treatment away from just an episodic annoyance towards this patient has a serious long-term condition for which I have an important role in starting treatment. All right. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Gray, Dr. Kahan, Dr. Borgenvog. I just can't believe the amount of collective wisdom in this room is it's the room is actually boiling hot right now, and I think it's because of the of just the inter- are our brains melting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, my brain is melted. So thank you all very much for uh, joining us on EM cases. Thank, thank you. you. Anton. Thanks, Anton.